0: The question is, are we developing the areas of the human brain that allow us to love the way we see Jesus love when we read about it in the scriptures, the way he's still loving us today?
1: Hi, I'm Carl Vaders, and welcome to The Church Lobby, Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My guest in this episode is Michael Hendricks, and he and I will be talking about brain science, Christian connection, and character development. For the last couple of years, I've written articles at the end of each year about the best books that I read during that year. And in 2023, my top 10 list included the book, The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks. So in this episode, I get to interview one of the authors, Michael Hendricks, about this fascinating place where our faith and brain science actually intersect. If this sounds intimidating to you, don't worry about that. Both the book and this conversation put the cookies on a low shelf for all of us, me included. It's one of the reasons I like the book so much is that it made something that could be so complicated very accessible to all of us. Also, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that we're looking ahead to the arrival of my new book, Desizing the Church, How Church Growth Became a Science, Then an Obsession, and What's Next. It's coming on April the 2nd, 2024, but it's available right now for pre-sale anywhere you buy books. As we get closer to the release date, we'll let you know more about it. Don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with some additional thoughts that I had from the content in Michael's book that we didn't have time to get to in the podcast. My guest today is Michael Hendricks, and uh, Michael, you you, uh, co-wrote a book that was one of my favorite for the year in 2023, Mm -hmm. The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. So thank you so much for being with me on the podcast
0: today. Uh, You're welcome, Carl. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah. How did you get involved in co-writing a book about brain science and the church? Where does that? (laughs) I am fascinated by the two. I've done some reading over the last year or two over a bunch of that, including diving fully into the body, keeps the score and those kinds of things. And I've just been fascinated by it but I don't find very many who share my fascination of brain science and the church. So even when I just saw the title and went, oh, it's about this, I read it and then was just blown away by what's in it. How do you get involved in something like that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of times when someone writes a book, it's because I've become such an expert in an area that I want to share my expertise with everybody so they can become experts and smart, just like I'm smart. And that's not at all what happened with this book. I was almost the opposite. I was I came into this really through a lot of kind of sitting in some confusion and having more more questions than answers. As a, I was a pastor of discipleship at a large church, and it was a church that was really good at getting people through the doors, you know, people that wouldn't normally go to church, they would come to our church. So we're really good at that, but we had very little plan on how do we help them afterwards when they come to Jesus and they start wanting to know more, how do we help them grow and mature and all that kind of stuff. So that's what I was essentially hired to do in my church. And so I did a bunch of stuff. A lot of the typical stuff I had learned growing up, you know, I became a Christian in college years. So all all of my experience, I tried a bunch of different stuff. And it was during that time where I felt I kind of started bumping up against the wall. And that wall was kind of the word sometimes where the, the usual kind of Christian discipleship practices I had learned and that usually the things we teach and churches seem to work sometimes really well, and other times they didn't seem to work at all, or they work for some kinds of problems that people had in life to kind of help them overcome them and heal and stuff. But there's other kinds of problems where it's almost like, you know, that didn't get traction at all.
1: Not that any of us have ever experienced the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. The more a yeah.
0: lot of people that contact me after reading the book say, that's exactly what happened to me. You know, they just feel validated more than anything, you know, like, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. not the only person that's experienced this. And so it was in the middle of that, probably two years into my my job as discipleship pastor, maybe two and a half, that I just started realizing, you know, I don't know how to do my job because I don't think I understand how people mature and grow in character and and become the things that Jesus seems to say that we should easily and naturally become. And so I, I got to that point as when I didn't, I got a, a phone call one day of a man who was had visited our church. He was an elder of another church in Denver. And he said, Michael, I want to have lunch with you. You know, I'm a friend of Lifetime's friend of Dallas Willard. You know, and Dallas is kind of a, a discipleship guru type of a guy. We sat down for lunch and he said, you know, Dallas would tell me, you know, it seems like a lot of people are reading my books, but I don't see hardly any church is actually doing it. And then this man said, well, it looks to me like you're actually doing it at your church, which normally would be a compliment, right? But I was swimming in this confusion and frustration as a pastor and said, yeah. So I said, yeah, but... And I shared kind of just all what I just shared. I have more questions than answers. I feel like, I do, like I'm like i missing big pieces of the puzzle about how people actually grow as followers of Jesus. And so he said, well, why don't we get together and start meeting once a month and having lunch and let's study this and see if we can maybe unearth some stuff together. And uh, and I invited a fr- another friend of mine who's a pastor. And we, so we started meeting every month, just reading books and looking at videos, listening to sermons, all sorts of stuff. And it was, you know, maybe six months into that where this man, his name's Bob, he said, you know, I think we're ignoring the role that the human brain plays in discipleship. And I had no idea, like, I had no idea what he was even talking about. I basically said, Bob, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? And he said, well, let me invite my friend Jim Wilder to our our lunch next month, because I think he probably can explain it better than I can. And so that's what happened a month later. Jim Jim Wilder sat down, and asked me, you know, what do you want out of this meeting? And I kind of shared some of my frustrations as a, as a pastor of discipleship. And he said, well, Michael, I think it might help you understand a little bit, if it would help you to understand a little bit, how about God, how God designed the human brain to mature us and to grow our character. And then he bent over and pulled out a plastic brain out of his bag. He unhooked the right and left halves and started showing us how and how the brain processes our life experiences to form our character and to bring healing and to build us up into the image of Jesus. I had never heard anything like that in my life. I'd been a Christian maybe 35 years at that point, and no one had ever said anything like that to me, the role that the brain plays, you know, which of course is the hand of God as well, because he designed it. He wired us up. And so once I heard a little bit of what Jim was saying, I was like all in. My wife and I basically jumped into the deep end of the pool with him, and he and his wife opened up the the doors of their house and their lives and their family to us, and we just couldn't get enough. So that's kind of how I got exposed to this.
1: Yeah, yeah. The brain is, it's really the last frontier of medical science because we understand how the pancreas works. We understand how the liver works, yeah. but we are barely scratching the surface, sometimes literally, of how the brain works. Yeah. And we're, we're really almost, where, where we were in medieval times for the rest of the body, it feels like we're kind of there with brain science, but we're just beginning to understand, first of all, that it's important, and then beginning to understand, I think, how it works. What would you say, before we actually get into the some of the great content what would you say let's let's just start right off front with those who are skeptical about what are we getting into brain science for why don't we just you know do it you know preach jesus why don't we just do this why are we even bothering with this and for those who might even be a little bit concerned that we're getting into some spooky weird areas Mm -hmm. when we start talking about things like how our brain functions and so on what would you do to allay some of those uh, fears and concerns
0: Yeah. So I, I too, you know, I'm a a student of scripture as well. And I was thinking even when Jim would start explaining some of the things and some, some Christian practices that maybe we don't think of that have been lost to the church for a long time. But if you look at the way the brain was designed, it's very important. And I thought, well, if it's right that the same person, the same God who does, who inspired scripture through his Holy Spirit is the same one who also wired our brains together, then we should see some of these things we're learning from the brain should also agree with scripture. So, You know, if you read the other half of church, I have a lot of scripture in each passage for each of the kinds of areas of practices that we do, showing how what the brain is designed to use to learn to grow is also we see all over scripture. A lot of times we know it, obviously, but sometimes these are things that we just kind of minimized in scripture. But now that we see how important they are to the human brain, we realize, oh, wow, when he says this, this is a lot more important than I realized. But I just kind of overlooked it because I didn't have... I didn't have like a background and infrastructure to realize that this was that important.
1: Right up front, you and Jim lay some things out that help us to Change some misunderstandings. Most people have an have an understanding that there's there are two halves to the brain, and we've got this idea that the right is creative, the left left is analytical. You know, some people are more dominant in one, and others are more dominant in the other, and so that's why you've got the creatives on one side, and you've got the you know academics on the other side. And what you say you discovered was that in fact we have really misunderstood a lot of that. That while the brain does have two halves, that it functions in different ways than we thought and that we in the church are pretty much only tapping into one part of that so walk us through how do the different halves function and how have we maybe misunderstood the way they function
0: yeah the right half of the brain really is what we would call our social emotional you know relational brain it's basically asking questions like who am i attached to here who's happy to be with me you know also is this safe or is this a good place to be is there anything scary here is anything bad i need to worry about is this really good and it's also asking, you know, does anybody in this place and around me get me? Can I tell mm-hmm. from their faces that they care about me, that there's compassion, that they know what's going on inside of me, that there's, there's a bond between us? And also the right side has a lot to do with, with a really missing part in crystal discipleship that's fundamental to the brain, which is our identity. Like, who am I in this situation? And also, who are we as a group? What, can, what is it like our people to do in this situation I find myself right now? Our brains, 12 times a second, our brain is asking, looking for that, answers to that question.
1: Did I hear you say 12 times a second?
0: 12 times a second, okay, our brain is wow. processing aspects of all these different kinds of questions like I just mentioned, but they're all relational. They're bonding. They're Who's bonded to me? Who's with me? Who's having compassion? I mean, who am I and who are we? And then mm-hmm. the left side of the brain is more, it's kind of the, the rational brain. It's much, much slower. So the right brain okay. is relational brain knows things really fast that's why a lot of times you know something but you can't explain why you know it
1: oh yeah maybe it takes
0: another minute a couple minutes and you realize oh okay now i can now i have some words to explain it or sometimes it takes a couple days or you need to talk with someone about it that means our right brains come to some conclusions it's very much faster and it's not verbal and our left brain a lot of what our left brain is do is it works to try to put into words what's going what my right brain has already found out or decided
1: might even be explained more as kind of the gut. Like when yeah. you say you have a gut reaction, that's your right brain recognizing maybe patterns and relationship things and cues yeah. that it's tapped into. I think at one point in the book, you even talk about how the right brain processes things. You, you said 12 times a second. I can't remember what the numbers were in the book, but the left brain is just like one step slower than that.
0: Yeah, it's like five times a second. Yeah, it's about oh, five. Oh, okay,
1: so that's why we tap into cues, facial cues, relational cues. And then later on, we have to sit down and figure out, okay, why is that? Because what you're describing is what everybody has experienced, right? We get this gut reaction, something's not right here, or something's wonderful here. And only later can we process rationally what that wrong thing is or why it feels right here. That's not an emotional response, what you're saying, really, as much as it is what, a relational response? It's If it's not emotional, what is the better way to, to categorize that response?
0: Well, emotions are involved. Emotion's part of it. It's not all emotional, though. It's who okay. who I'm bonded to. What's my snap assessment of the situation based on a library of past experiences? Do I feel all alone here? Or do I feel like there's some people that are with me whatever happens to be going on, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or a boring thing? or f- And then our left brain then is trying to figure out, hmm, I wonder why I'm having this reaction. And here's a little piece of scripture, too. You know, I've read this many times. Uh, Jesus' half-brother, when he writes, you know, we, as a people, we are slow to speak and very f- quick to listen. And what that means is when you're slow to speak, you're actually giving your right brain time to process this stuff. And you're actually looking and soaking in the faces of the people around you in the, in the nonverbal la- language before you speak. Whenever we speak really fast, it's usually a sign we're not doing well because we've kind of circuited our right brain and we're going straight to words. In that case, a lot of times the words aren't going to come out very well But now we know some brain science. When we're speaking, when we're very slow to speak, it means our brain is working well. When we're fast to speak, it means our brain's not working well.
1: Okay. Now let's add to the left and right. There's also a front and back going on. Yeah. The quote I pulled from the book about this, he says, everything you experience follows this path back Mm -hmm. to front on the right side, then front to back on the left side. So we're just barely beginning to understand the left, right, and the differences there. And now we're going to add front to back. We're going to yeah. go, you know, we'll try to go slow this for all of us who are listening, in, including and especially me, because all of a sudden, now that it's, I'm seeing an S shape in my mind in the brain. Is that <laughs> anywhere close to accurate?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, if you know, your back of your brain is kind of back at your nerve stem at the top of your right. neck where it goes in. As it's coming forward, it's also going up, Right.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, And then all this
0: travels over, like behind our eye, it travels to the left side. And the left side is kind of up and then down on the left side. So
1: S-shape as much as it's a bent
0: U-shape kind of. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay, okay. And this is just
0: the control processor of the human brain. It's not the entire human brain. The human brain does a lot of other stuff. We're talking about the control processor, which is the part that's constantly processing what's going around us and lining it up and trying to find out who am I in the situation. It's really identity-driven.
1: Okay, I'm just going to ask you a basic two-word question. So what? <laughs> yeah. For those of us who are in ministry, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are helping people process spiritual and emotional information and behavior and character formation, so what? How does this help me understand that and do that better?
0: Yeah, so we find pretty clearly, both Jesus says it and Apostle Paul says it, Jesus' disciple John say it that, the main thing Jesus wants us to do as disciples is, is go and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey everything he's commanded us, right? But all, the, all of his followers in scripture say over and over again that every command, you know, to teach every people what Jesus' command, every single command follows under one giant overarching command, which is to love God and to love other people well, right? And so when we're trying to make disciples of Jesus, we're trying to make you know, primarily, there's lots of areas of that. Our our central function is to create a people who love like Jesus loves. And the brain, and especially the right brain, is really designed around loving well. And parts of the right brain as well, all of our brain can be developed through habits and through relational interactions. The question is, are we developing the areas of the human brain that allow us to love the way we see Jesus love when we read about it in the scriptures, and the way he's still loving us today? And are we becoming those kinds of people? There are some spiritual things, some practices we can do that build the loving areas of our brain so that we can easily and naturally love people. And we can even go to the point, you know, the the hardest command Jesus gave to us in this category is to love our enemies. And to love our enemies, we need to have a very well-developed both left brain and right brain, and to have them work well together and to be well-trained. You know, one of the things I would say is we're often told the right things to do and told what scripture says about loving our enemies and loving god like we love ourselves and loving our neighbors but very seldom are we actually trained how to do that what are some exercises i can do that over time i will naturally become a person who loves more and more like jesus loves people
1: It really uh, this was helpful to me in reading it and i i hope it's helpful to, for church leaders that are listening to this Because when we talk about right brain, left brain, and we've only heard the pop psychology end of things, we think right brain, creative, left brain, academic. And for some of us, that translates into right brain, touchy-feely, left brain is where the real solid stuff is. Right. And right brain, feminine, left brain, masculine or something. And there's this tendency in certain circles to then Mm -hmm. diminish the value of right brain thinking because we only think it's just touchy-feely, but it's really not. It's relational. It's communication, it's it's connection with other people, it's love God and love others as Jesus told us to. But then it gets processed in tandem with intelligence and understanding yep. uh, that comes from the left brain part of it. And you, well, your story is one that says you really were only what concentrating from the left brain stuff and the academic and weren't tapping in. So the other half of church, therefore, is this not fully appreciated right brain relational part of it. Is is, is that what I'm I'm gathering yeah. from your story as how you came into that is that you weren't, you were seeing the value of the left brain rational teaching and instruction, but you weren't fully tapping into the other
0: side. Yeah. When when uh you know one of the things, one of the frustrations I I expressed to Jim Wilder when I was having lunch with him and I said, why don't we see more radical transformation of character in the church? Right. And uh, why, does, why don't we see our discipleship work more consistently? Why does it seem to work sometimes and other times it doesn't seem to work? Or certain kinds of people are problems, it works well, and other kinds of people are problems, it doesn't seem to work at least well. And one of the things Jim said after explaining explained the brain, he said, you know, what we've done in Christianity over the last about 500 years or so is we put most of our discipleship focus on left brain skills, but we really... But we really need a full-brain discipleship that uses both the right brain and the left brain, develops both of those in tandem. Because we don't want all left-brain Christianity, but we don't want all right-brain Christianity either. And our brain wasn't meant to be right or left-brain. Our brain was meant to work the two spheres cohesive together. They're meant to work together. But we need to start asking the question, what would a full-brain discipleship look like? meaning we're not going to get rid of some of the left brain things. Left brain is more, it's about strategies and conscious thought and willpower and believing the right things. All those things are important. We're not saying that doesn't matter. You Don't forget all that. We want that. Let's hold the, keep doing that and let's add in things from the right brain. One of the areas that's really important that a skill that's learned in the right brain is, is emotional regulation. And when we become emotionally dysregulated, we don't love well. Even while we may be espousing perfect doctrine, we're right. simultaneously not loving well. That's a good example of, you know, my left brain's somewhat developed, but my right brain, you know, my, my ability to love when things are really hard, like when you're really angry at me, can I sk- still keep loving you? Right. I think we would all agree, but we saw Jesus do that over and over again. He did it really, really well. Well, sh- shouldn't we be developing those same skills as well as developing, you know, our good doctrine and having good practices and strategies?
1: And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes.
2: Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: In the book, character formation is a primary responsibility of the Church. And I think sometimes we get the idea that we develop character by just teaching these are the right things to do and do these things. But we all know we've seen people follow the rules— but not develop good character, they're maybe doing the right things, but they're not really being who Jesus called us to be. And if you're going to move from knowing the right rules to doing the right things to being who we should be, you've got to involve both sides of the brain, right? If you've only got one, then you've got a bunch of nice people who may be believing wrong things. And on the other side, you might have a bunch of people who know the right things to do, but are acting like jerks.
0: Right. We don't (laughs) want either.
1: Yeah, we don't want either one of those, right? So, so when the two halves work together, that's really where becoming like Jesus, this is how the brain participates in character development. It's not yeah. all in the brain. It's not like we can just turn our brains on and make ourselves do that. We are not computers, but the computer inside our skulls needs to be involved properly in the process of character formation.
0: Correct. And character also is a very fast decision. It's largely, it's right brain dominant. Character is kind of like our instantaneous behavior, instantaneous reactions to things. And uh, we can't change our character by willpower because our willpower is very slow. So we've already, you know, my angry look at you or my impatient roll my eyes at someone who just said something I thought was stupid in the meeting at work. Those come out really fast. And then later I realize that I did it, right? The question is, how do you actually change that really fast, instantaneous, spontaneous response, those bounces, to be very loving,
1: Yeah, how do we get there? That's that's a big question for a lot of us for most of us. That is the
0: right brain stuff that we talk about in the other half of church is how does how does the brain actually form character? And it forms it through a very full brain process that's heavily dependent on the right brain concepts of bonding and group identity. What kind of people are we? Building our group identity is like building a library that at a really fast speed, our right brain will access that library and And different stuff will come out according to what's been stored in our group identity, what kind of people we are.
1: One of the ways that is very poetically phrased in the book is this, the left brain runs at the speed of words, the right brain runs at the speed of joy. Mm -hmm. And joy is addressed a lot in this book. So let's talk about how does joy come into this? I mean, people don't equate joy with brain. Right. Right. But obviously, if you're feeling joy, there's stuff going on inside your brain. Those synapses are firing in certain ways that give us that wondrous sensation. Joy is obviously much deeper than sensation and much deeper than emotion and much deeper than happiness. But again, I'll say the phrase and then I'll I'll hand it to you. The left brain runs at the speed of words. The right brain runs at the speed of joy. Walk us through that.
0: Yeah, 12 times a second, our brain is scanning our environments to see, are there people here who are happy to be with me? Mm. who are interested in me, who care for me. It's all nonverbal. In a twelfth of a second, I can tell from your face that you're happy to be with me or you're not happy to be with me. But joy is really what it you know kind of functions almost like the gas tank, the relational gas tank. Joy is what gives us energy to do all of the hard relational things we do in life. Again, joy is not happiness. It's more that I'm glad that we're together so we can be glad to be together in successes and good things that happen and fun to be together. We can also be glad to be together when the, you know, what just hit the fan in some big problem. And we are together and, and I'm like, oh, I'm so, I don't know what to do in this problem, but I'm so thankful that we're together in this, that we get to try to figure it out and seek God together. That's a high joy reaction, but it's not happy. I'm not happy this whatever it is that just happened, I'm not happy about that. And so joy means that we're a high joy community means that we are glad to be together in the good times and in the bad times and in the boring times and the exciting times and everything else in between. It means that we are we're special to each other and we can tell instantly from a very nonverbal clue. It doesn't really rely much on words. Joy doesn't. It's much more dependent on our face, our eyes, our body posture.
1: Pictures in my head now as you're talking about that. One on the positive, one on the negative side. On the positive side think of the joy. I'm a grandparent. So I I think immediately of the joy. The second one of us turns the corner and our grandkids see us and we see them. There is an elation on both sides. That is absolutely, I mean, joy is the only term that can come close to describing what that feels like. That's the picture on the one side. That's that instantaneous. I can feel that firing multiple times a second, that absolute, and I can see it in their faces when they run towards us yelling grandma, grandpa, right? The other side of that is, well, let's get right to it. The kind of conversation you and I are having right now on the internet with a slight delay, it's a slight delay electronically, but if our brains are looking for stuff 12 times a second, that means that there's, it's called asynchronous communication, I believe is the term. Yep. And we're spending so much time on our screens where we are not having the normal, natural speed of even facial recognition. Am I tracking correctly with the differences between those and how does that impact us in character formation?
0: Yeah. Online right now, we don't have the, the bandwidth on the internet to keep up with the 12 12 times a second handshake, but from my eye to your eye. So it's really six times a second because it goes to yours. 12th a second goes to yours and 12th times a second. You come back to me. So we have the six times a second interface between our eyes and our faces, nonverbal skills. And that's the reason why there's been some studies on this, why after you've been on a, a video conference for a while, you feel exhausted in a way you don't when you're in person because your brain is trying harder to sync up and it can't quite do it.
1: As you say that, that makes perfect sense.
0: Yep. You feel it in your bodies.
1: Yes. I can't imagine anybody who spent any time doing this that would go, oh, no, that's a bunch of nonsense. But yeah, that absolutely makes sense. It's not, our brains are not calibrated at the same pace as our computers are. And the right. only way we're going to have properly synchronous calibration, uh, Boy, I just said way, way more big words than I've ever put together in three or four <laughs> words together. The only way we're going to do that in a way that is designed the way the way our brains work is when we're in the room. This comes down to as we're talking to you know most of the people that I'm talking to right now, we're talking to primarily small church pastors. This is one of the real values of the in the room church experience. Yep. I don't have any problem with churches live streaming. Our church live streams. There are great benefits to it, but we all know we're not getting a fully formed church experience unless we're in the same room. And some of that is neurological. Right. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Again, the joy part of it is such a huge part of what you talked about, that there really is a, a connection of our brains to the joy that Christ says he will give us when we are practicing these things in real time with people, it goes to all of the commands of the New Testament that we are to gather together, that we're to be with one another, that we need one another, that we're supposed to do things for one another. And you say in the book that the church did not start out the way we are today being half brained. And by half brained, it's not an insult. We're not saying we're stupid. We're saying we're only using half the brain, but that in the book of Acts, we find a really vibrant whole brained community, When did that change? I'm assuming it didn't happen all at once, but that there was a process of change over the years that moved us from really engaging both sides of our brain in the book of Acts to really dominantly using mostly just one side of our brain today. How did that come about?
0: Yeah, well, you know, Jim Wilder's theory is that this largely was set up in the Enlightenment period. You know, a lot of good things happen in the Enlightenment period. I'm not like trashing the Enlightenment, but one of the things that tended to happen, the concept that the most human part of us is our thoughts, right? I think, therefore I am. So our thoughts are really the most human part of us. So as long as I get... And then from that was a short step to say the most important part of Christianity is believing the right things. Yeah. That's where the the pulpit was elevated to the point where it's almost all content You know, put person was up front. We're all facing the same way versus, you know, in the book of Acts, of course, it was mostly in homes and it was oftentimes around a meal together. So content is important, by the way. You know, when you watch your church online, you can get the content well, because that's primarily left brain. What you can't do, though, is grow in your bonding, have people attuned to your emotions, things like that are impossible to do unless you're with other people. And so, again, we argue for both of those. Both of those are very important. It's okay to watch your sermon, your church sermon from time to time, because sometimes we do need some information. That's what we need. But also a lot of times what we need is relational bonding with people who are my family and who attune to me and I tune to them, and that we are joyful together and we love each other and things like that, which have to be in person in the same room.
1: As we record this, I'm a few months away from my, my new book coming out, Desizing the Church. In that book, I have a chapter entitled Discipleship Fixes Everything. And I, I got to tell you, I wish I had read your book before I had written mine because I'd, I'd have quoted it a lot. Uh, but one of the things you do uh, address in the book, you and Jim Wilder are addressing in the book, is making a point of how important discipleship is. And one of the points you make is this. Pastors and elders often feel pressure to get fast results that look impressive. Discipleship does not excite a leader whose eyes are fixed on numbers. So it is almost a bit of, not contradiction, but a, but an interesting contrast that the right side of our brain is working so much faster, that emotional connective character-forming, attachment-forming part of our brain is working so much faster than the rational brain. But in fact, the character development that it is working on is much slower and takes much more time, and discipleship takes much more time than simply getting butts in the seats and getting a crowd in the room and getting the information out to them. So there's almost this interesting contrast there. So talk with us a little bit about the importance of engaging both sides of our brain in this process called discipleship, which is the command that Jesus gave us as church leaders to do, to make disciples.
0: Yeah, that's where Dallas Willard kind of nailed it, where he said, the church's central goal is to create disciples of Jesus who easily and naturally do what Jesus would do and say what Jesus would do if Jesus were there in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And he said instead of the great commission, we've committed basically the great omission, which is that we've we've talked about discipleship, but we haven't really done it much, at least in the last, you know, hundred few hundred years. And the reason a lot of the reason is because it doesn't seem productive numbers-wise. It doesn't, it's not easy, uh, As you start building joy and start bonding in a family-level way, which is one of the necessary elements for character change, you're going to see all sorts of trauma come up and all sorts of problems percolate to the surface. That's actually a good thing because the more you build your joy, the more deeply bonded your church is, the more easily trauma will percolate to the surface in order to be healed. But you can look at that and say, oh, look at this. All this stuff's going wrong because we're doing this. We need to stop doing that and just plant people's butts in seats again and get them all facing the same direction so we don't have this kind of thing happening. And so, but actually it's just the opposite. When that, when the trauma starts coming up, it's because the brain goes, I am in a really healthy relational environment now. I am getting stronger. So it's time for, to get some healing. I'm I'm strong enough to heal now. And the Holy Spirit is at one and one and one when that's saying, yes, now's the time to heal. So, But you got to be able to handle the mess. A lot of times churches don't like messes, but messes are necessary in order to get good stuff done.
1: Well, there's so much going on here, and I wish I I could get into all of it. I I really do recommend folks who want to follow up on this to read the other half of church. Uh, You and I had talked before this about doing the bonus content on one piece of information, but what I want to do is I want to shift it. We've talked a little bit about joy. But I want to really talk in the bonus content about joy because you bring up three important points of convergence about joy, that joy is primarily transmitted through the face, which we talked about a little bit, that joy is relational, that joy is important to God and to us, and that gratitude is the first step in having joy. And including you talk about how joy leaks and how do we plug those leaks? So in the bonus content, we'll do that. So for those of you who are listening, uh, who don't know how to get the bonus content, if you are a a regular supporter of this ministry, or if you simply are subscribing to our free newsletter, uh, which you can do by going to carlvaders.com slash support or carlvaders.com slash subscribe. Either one of those, sign up for our monthly newsletter, and you will get the link to all of the bonus content for all of the podcasts, including a special conversation that uh, Michael and I will have about joy. But before we get to the lightning round in a few minutes, uh, the final half of the book, first of all, the front half of the book is really what we've been talking about so far, but the second half of the book, the other half of church, (laughs) uh, you actually even get into how to address some of the problems that are created when we're not fully functioning with both halves of our brain properly coordinated to address issues like shame, like narcissism, like what happens when we go into enemy mode, and so on. Mm-hmm. So if any church leaders are facing any of those deals issues themselves, or are facing any of those issues within the congregation, get the book and de- address that. Are there any of those kind of negative characteristics, negative character qualities that you would say we can address in just a couple of minutes before we get to the lightning round in this episode.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the ways our characters changed is by two things: by regularly repeating to each other what kind of people we are in specific situations. Like, who are we as Jesus' discipleship, or who are we as a church when someone cuts us off in traffic and flips the bird? Oh, gotcha. Right. Or when we get the promotion. So we need we need help with good things and hard things and everything what happens when you know like a pastor for example what happens when someone comes to you and says pastor you know my my uh, my brother and sister say that the vaccine is evil and it's a satanic way of corrupting our brains but then my my mom and my grandmother said no it's going to save our life what do you think pastor what do I do I get the vaccine or not during covid <laughs> Most pastors would draw what's called a file not found in their group identity because they go like, what kind of people are we? I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, if you're a pastor too, and someone comes up and says, you know, my daughter says she wants to transition to become a male and that she wants to have the transition surgery now. And if she doesn't get it, she said she's going to commit suicide. Pastor, what am I supposed to do? Right. Right. Again, that's a file not found. No, Nowhere in seminary, nowhere in our discipleship have we told people how to even think about these kinds of problems. So a lot of pastors are just getting, uh, you know, 404 file not founds in their brain, and it's very uncomfortable. But we need to start by developing a good and healthy and robust group identity about what, what's it look like to live in God's kingdom on this messy place called earth. And then the second big thing is then when we see each other forgetting who we are and not acting like the people we really are how do we give them gentle reminders of who we are in the form of correction those two things are real key if we're going to if we're going to be a church that actually builds character into being children of our greatest character trait is that we're children of god what does that look like and so those are two things i go i go into at at depth in the book and i yeah. uh, would encourage you to kind of dive into that
1: Yeah, it it is important to understand the book is not entitled The Other Half of the Christian, it's The Other Half of Church, because Mm -hmm. it's not just individual Christians who need to be fully functioning, whole-brained people, but the entire church itself then takes on that character. And you can go, just as you can find a healthy or an unhealthy Christian, you can find a healthy or an unhealthy church, and operating together on both sides of our brain is not the entire answer to any of this. We're not presenting it that way at all, but it it we'd be foolish to ignore how God created this organ in our body that literally controls every single function of our brain, whether consciously or subconsciously. And to understand that, how it's governed to use our body and and to see the scripture, because you've got so much scripture in here that matches up with, we've already talked about some of that but the scriptural basis for it. So again, I really do encourage pastors, if you want to get more deeply into this, and especially if you want to recognize and correct some of the uh, difficulties in the last half of the book that we barely got to touch on today, I encourage you to do so. Uh, But before we do that, and then before we pause to do the bonus round that folks can get, if they go to carlvaders.com, subscribe, or carlvaders.com, support, Uh, let's go through the lightning round together. We've got four questions for you today. First of all, what are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it?
0: Yeah, the biggest thing probably in the last few years is COVID and the willingness for people to think maybe there's more to this than what we've been doing in our churches, and there's more there's more ways to experience God than maybe I've been told or trained how to do. And just an openness to try new things and see, well, maybe You know, scripture at the same time, try new things and see, you know, maybe there's some something out there that will generate a deeper, more lasting love of Jesus and love of the people around me that I'm able to do right now. It's that hunger.
1: There are two uh, almost equal but opposite reactions to that. There are the healthy churches that respond to, hey, these are people who are spiritually hungry and they're asking important questions. And there are unhealthy churches that respond with, that's not the kind of question we ask here. and see it as a threat rather than as an openness to deeper spiritual conversations. And pastors, let me encourage you, quite often the people are asking the deepest and most important questions are coming from places and behaviors that are not biblical, that are not scriptural, but they are asking questions, and we need to be far more open to their probing and to sometimes even their anger. <laughs> yep. Because people who are questioning things seldom ask questions in the way we wish they were asked.
0: <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's changing. And I think we, I think it's an opportunity to address more than a threat to be feared Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. So second question, what free resource like an app or website has helped you lately that you'd recommend for small church ministry?
0: Uh, We have kind of a a thing we call joy stream. It's at life, my life where for 10 bucks a month or somewhere around there, you can watch all the videos online. So you can sign up and watch a bunch and then you can deactivate if you're not watching. But there's some good, if you're more, if you're, if you'd like a little more of the teaching on the brain, I would go into joy stream and listen, watch some of the videos there. Soak it up and uh, and just start, you know, little by little doing that. And and I would recommend you, you know, reading some of our other books. The Other Half of Church is a good start, but we have a bunch of other books that then, you know, The Other Half of Church is like the on-ramp into this, and then we have a lot to go into. If you're a pastor, I would especially recommend two books, Renovated and uh, what's called The Pandora Problem. Those are the two books I would recommend if you're a pastor.
1: Love that in the show notes for you, too. Uh, number three, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received?
0: Yeah. Best piece of ministry advice is to pay attention to your fears and never be motivated by fear. And -hmm. if you find yourself being motivated by fear, that's a really good time to slow down, interact with Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm having some fears or anything you want me to know. And that's following our fears. Jesus will take it to us some really healing places. So pay attention to your fears and don't be motivated and don't motivate others by fear.
1: My guess is that the opposite would be true. That is, if you're not paying enough attention to your fears, you are probably more likely to be motivated by them.
0: Without realizing it, yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, what's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church?
0: Oh, this is going to go back for some younger people. They won't understand it, but there was a time when we, we used to use... The projectors. What do you call the projectors? Rear, rear.
1: Oh, the oh, uh, oh yeah, the the the, the overhead, projector.
0: overhead projectors. Overhead projectors like, for like music a, songs. A, there was
1: a, it looked like a piece of paper, but it was a clear slide, and you right. type on it, and you'd set it on this thing, and yeah,
0: yeah. So they weren't using PowerPoint or the fancy programs right. from a computer. I was in. I lived in Argentina, and one time it was a hot summer day. We were at church, and the feeling ceiling fans were going like crazy, and somehow a nest of bats had gotten. Uh, wakened up and a bat flew out and got chopped in half by the ceiling fan right above the projector and all the blood and the body parts fell on the projector right in the middle of a praise song. So all of a sudden there was just like splat all over the entire screen in the middle of our worship song. Thankfully, the all started laughing so hard that it was wasn't traumatic for us, but it was definitely a surprise.
1: I, I mean, there are multiple, the bat, one, two, getting hit by the fan, three, getting chopped up by the fan, four, getting displayed that. <laughs> on the screen for, oh, that's, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Hey, Michael, thank, if anybody wants to follow up online with any of this, is there any way folks can reach you? What's the best way to do that?
0: Yeah, a lot of what I do is I consult with a lot of churches and ministries and start training them in these skills. So you can go to Life Model Works. And, uh, and look for life model consulting and you can fill out a thing and it'll send me an email directly. And, uh, and if you're interested, I'll, we'll start talking and see how we might help you do this better.
1: Again, folks, if you want to follow through the bonus content, go to carlvaders.com slash subscribe or carlvaders.com slash support. If you sign up in either of those places, you can get all the bonus content. We are going to go right into a conversation about 10 minutes or so about joy and gratitude and how joy leaks and how to, to stop up those leaks and how important that is in ministry and in Christian life. Thank you again, Michael, so much for this time today. Thank you, Carl. science has become really fascinating to me over the last couple of years and there was so much in this book that I got out of it that we just didn't have time to get into in our interview with Michael but one of the things that I did want to talk to you about a little bit was this that this idea of joy being such a driver for our emotions and something that the Bible talks about so much that joy is primarily infused into our lives by storytelling and not by teaching If you take a look at the teaching of Jesus, the Bible tells us that he never taught without telling a parable. Jesus was a storyteller. The Bible is filled with stories. Yes, it has instructions. Yes, it has commandments. Yes, it has teaching. But it's all built around the story of what God does interacting with his people. And when we retell those stories, there's something that connects on a deeper level with us. So I encourage us as pastors to not back away from teaching at all, but to infuse our teaching with storytelling from scripture and from our lives, because that the vessel that transports the teaching into people's hearts and lives and gives it a higher likelihood of actually being lived out in their character. The second thing that the book talks about that we didn't get into almost at all was that trauma is something that really happens within our brains and that God has designed our brains to overcome. And that storytelling actually helps us overcome trauma. If you've ever been through trauma and have received healing through trauma, you will know that simple instruction about how our brains work isn't what got you through it. But talking with other people about their stories and sharing your story with them is a great way of healing trauma. And it helps to eliminate future triggering from the trauma that we've received. This is a big part of what Michael talks about, where both sides of our brain are working together. It's really important. So if we can dig into scripture, understand how much God loves us, respond back to that with gratitude, tell our story of healing, hear other people's stories of healing, this is a huge way of overcoming generational trauma, your own specific trauma, church trauma, and everything else. And then the last piece that I'd like to talk about that I want to encourage you to go to his book for is this. They talk about when a pastor's character flaws get a pastor in trouble. And we're seeing this happen so often, far too often recently. When that happens, as they say in the book, we often hear people say, well, he needs to take some time off to get healing. But the point they make in the book, and I think it's really important, is this, that while healing is a part of the path to getting whole. What a leader needs more than healing, if they've got a character flaw, is maturity. If people have been hurt, they need to be healed. But if our character is flawed, more than healing, we need maturity. And a healthy church helps not just the members, but the leaders become more mature believers because all the healing in the world will not make a person mature. That's all in the book. I encourage you to pick it up. The other half of church. It will bless you and it will bless your ministry. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby.